I'm Graham. It's uh, my privilege to uh, be among the regular congregation of this church and to preach from time to time. Um, the kids' ministry, we prayed for that, didn't we? I was, uh, it was wonderful. I came in and I thought, we've got more pushchairs in this building than Mother Care. It's, uh, it's beautiful uh, to have that. God's word says this. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Shall we pray? Lord God, you give and take away. You give and you take away. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your glorious name. For we offer our praise and our thanks and our worship in the name of your beautiful Son, who died and rose again, that we might be reconciled, restored to fellowship with yourself. And we're very grateful, Father. In his name, amen. Well, today we return to our studies in uh, Genesis. The easy way to find your place in Genesis is this. Chapters 1 to 11 deal with four events. Creation, the fall, Noah's flood, and the Tower of Babel. I was listening to an American the other day, and he called it the Tower of Babel. Well, we'll forgive them that, won't we? It's the Tower of Babel, actually. Um, And then chapters 12 to 50 deal with four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And we're in the middle of looking at the life of uh, Jacob. His name means deceiver, and he lived up to his name with some remarkably bad behaviour. He exploited Esau's hunger to gain the birthright that belonged to his twin brother. Uh, Esau, you remember, exchanged his birthright for a bowl of soup. And then he gained the firstborn's blessing by disguising himself as Esau and pulling the wool over the eyes of his old, almost blind dad. Of course, Esau threatened to kill him, so Jacob runs for his life. And on his first night on the run... God appears to him in a dream and God tells him, I'm with you, I'll watch over you and I'll bring you back here. And Jacob made a vow to God that night. He said, if you do these things, then I'll come back here and worship you. He promised to come back to that place which he called Bethel. Remember Bethel today, it's uh, it's important in our uh, accounts. Uh, Jacob ran on and he exiled himself with his mother's relative Laban in a place called Haran. Whilst he was there, about 14 years, uh, we saw how Jacob married two women. He wanted Rachel, but the deceiver was deceived by his uncle Laban and uh, Leah, Rachel's older sister. So Leah became Jacob's first wife with Rachel following on uh, a week or so later. Jacob was head over heels in love with Rachel. But chapter 29 of Genesis tells us that God saw that Leah was hated. 
Leah was unloved. Remember that. It's important in our account. So after he's been there about 14 years, God speaks to Jacob again and says, I'm the God of Bethel. Go back to your native land. So Jacob packs his stuff with his wife and his family and he leaves. And he meets Esau. You remember he makes some kind of reconciliation and promises to follow his brother to Seir. But actually he goes the opposite way. And uh, please open your Bibles to page 37 at the end of chapter 33. In verse 17 we learn this. Jacob, however, went to Succoth, where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. That's why the place is called Succoth. He should have been going to Bethel, but he's not on his way to Bethel. He's building a house and stables. He's settling down, and he settles down in Succoth for several years. When he does move on, we read in uh, verse 18 of chapter 33, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. He's at Shechem, he's camped before the city, And he buys land there and settles down again. He's still not in Bethel where he should be. And it's here that we reach uh, what must be one of the most awful stories in the Bible. No one comes out of the next chapter looking good, uh, especially uh, Jacob. It's a chapter of uh, blackness and bleakness. It's very difficult. It's hard to know how to preach on it. You look in some commentaries and it's all they've got a Teflon finish. You remember the non-stick pans where you put an egg in, it comes straight out. Well, the commentaries do that. They kind of sidestep it, really. Um, It really is hard, which is why it wasn't read when the children were here. Some of us actually in here have been directly affected by some of the sins uh, described. You know, people object that the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, is out of date. This chapter describes the rape of a teenage girl, a terrible deception, sorry, and a mass killing. Just think of the local and national and international news over the last few months, and you'll find headlines about all three issues. Seems to me, actually, the Bible is right up to date. And the Bible's always up to date because it deals with our human nature. And human nature since the fall hasn't changed. People are broken and sinful. And the Bible gives us lessons and warnings on how and how not to live our lives. Other people say the Bible is a kind of made-up story. Um, But Genesis, uh, Jacob... Uh, is one of the Jewish people's great heroes. And Genesis is the first great religious book of their Torah. They love it. They prize it. And yet the total failure of their hero Jacob is here in all its evil and its ugliness. If I was writing uh, a made-up story, I would have blotted this out of the record. My hero would not be like this. But here it is. 
Because God is the ultimate author of the Bible and he wants us to learn from this terrible passage. Chapter 34, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, uh, the, sorry, the daughter Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. We meet Dinah. She's been mentioned once before in the baby wars between Leah and Rachel. She's probably the only girl amongst 11 brothers, and she's about 13, 14 years old. Uh, Unsurprisingly, I've never been a 14-year-old girl. Uh, But don't they like to go to town, uh, meet their friends, uh, hear the gossip, see what's going on, what's the latest fashion, what colour lipstick, that kind of stuff? Dinah is introduced as the daughter of Leah. She's the daughter of the unloved wife. She's the daughter in a large family, 11 brothers and a father, but she goes out unprotected and alone. By contrast, we are just going to meet the favoured son, Shechem, uh, son of Hamor, so favoured that he's got a city named after him. Verse 2, when Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hivites, The ruler of that area um, saw her, he took her and raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. Shechem rapes Dinah, but he wants to keep her. I think if he'd really loved her, he wouldn't have treated Dinah in this way. Verse 4. And Shechem said to his father Hamor, get me this girl as my wife. This son speaks to his father in a way that shows he's used to getting what he wants. He's a spoiled brat. He's rich, he's powerful, and he's used to getting his own way. Verse 5. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, His sons were in the fields with his livestock. So he did nothing about it until they came home. I didn't know what to say. Words fail me. Jacob hears that this terrible thing has happened to his daughter. And he says nothing. And he does nothing. He keeps quiet. And he continues to keep quiet about it as we'll see. Verse 6, then Shechem's father, Hamor, went out to talk to Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. In contrast to their father, the sons come in from the fields as soon as they're here. And they are furious. Moses, he is the author under God of Genesis, doesn't very often comment uh, personally, but he does here. He says this violation of Dinah is a thing that should not be done. Her brothers were horrified by this terrible crime. Moses was horrified by this terrible crime. And we should always be horrified by this terrible crime. Hamor arrives on the scene 
Verse 8, Amor said to them, My son Shechem has set his heart on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it. Trade in it. Acquire property in it. What a reasonable sounding bloke. Uh, trying to make the best of a bad situation. But he's somebody with money and power who has come to clean up a mess. He's come to get what his son wants. Get me that girl for my wife. And he sets out what seems to be a reasonable plan. But where is the sorrow over his son's awful sin? Nowhere. Sin doesn't matter to hear more. And then Shechem steps up, verse 11. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, let me find favour in your eyes and I'll give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift that I'm to bring as great as you like and I'll pay you whatever you ask me. Only give me the young woman as my wife. Where's Shechem's sorrow over his awful sin? Nowhere. Sin doesn't matter to Shechem. Compare Jacob's family, the gypsies actually, nomads, the outsiders. Compare them with Hamor and his son. Smooth-talking, powerful, wealthy. And they make light of this terrible violation of a girl they smooth over sin what's happened it's not such a big deal we can turn this into something good for both of us you know no matter who is speaking to us we need to be clear about right and wrong my experience is that we are drawn to people who are smooth talking and powerful and wealthy But their attitude to sin can be very dismissive. Think of presidents and politicians uh, abroad and here at home who have used their power and their wealth and their speech to win over young women and to use them for their own sexual satisfaction. Remember, Jesus wasn't crucified by the outcasts. He was crucified by the rich and the powerful And the smooth-talking people of the world. Verse 13. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. Jacob's children, not Jacob, answer Hamor and Shechem. And they answer them deceitfully. Jacob, the man who had spoken deceitfully so often, Now his words of deceit come from the lips of his children. Jacob has sown a wind and he is reaping a whirlwind. But they all know that what Hamor proposes is impossible for them. To intermarry outside the family is forbidden. And notice how Dinah is described as their sister. Because the brothers are stepping up to deal with the situation, while Father Jacob sits by and lets things happen. 
Verse 14. They said to them, we can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will enter into an agreement with you on one condition only. That you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we'll give our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you'll not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. The brothers have a plan. They have a plan to take care of the situation. And it involves using God's covenant sign of circumcision. Verse 18. Their proposal seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. The young man who was most the most honoured of all his father's family lost no time in doing what they said because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Shechem will do anything to have this girl as his trophy wife. And notice again that Shechem is the most honoured of all his father's family. And who's Dinah? She's the daughter of the unloved wife. Verse 20. Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak to the men of their city. These men are friendly with us, they said. Uh, Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. But the men will agree to live with us as one people only on the condition that our males be circumcised as they themselves are. Won't their livestock, their property and all their other animals become ours? So let's agree to their terms and they'll settle among us. All the men who went out of the city great agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. What can I say? Uh, Perhaps for a man, the unkindest cut of all, it would have been a bloody and a painful day in Shechem. No anaesthetics here, no painkillers. But Hamor convinces all the men to do this thing. How? He appeals to their greed. We can profit from this. Everything they have will become ours. You know, there's no limit to what we will do for the things that we love the most. Verse 25. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, were sons of Leah, the unloved wife, the full brothers of Dinah. And these brothers killed all the men in the city. Don't think city as in Sheffield, Leeds, Manchester. Um, Cities at this time weren't all that big, perhaps 600 people or so. But all the men, including Hamor and Shechem, were killed. It's easy to miss 
what I think is the most horrific thing about this. They took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. My brothers and sisters, this is not a fairy story. This is for real. This violated little girl was there with her rapist the whole time. She'd been raped by this man and she'd been held in his house for four days. And Jacob sat and did nothing. It's not surprising that Simeon and Levi go over the top. 27. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in uh, their houses. You know, the crime against Dinah was unspeakably awful. But what happens here is not justice. This is revenge. Justice is when the punishment fits the crime. Justice is what God does. Revenge is when the punishment exceeds the crime. That's what we do. Jacob did nothing. And vengeance comes from his sons. Because justice never came from Jacob. Circumcision was the covenant sign that was about God's faithfulness. Circumcision actually points us towards the shed blood of Christ. But circumcision was misused by Hamor to try to gain economic advantage. It was used by Shechem to gratify his lust. And circumcision was used by Jacob's sons as a cover for mass murder. You know, we must be very careful not to misuse the gifts and privileges that are given to us by our Heavenly Father. We must be careful not to use them for our own advantage and our own glory. If you do something very public in the church, if you're a uh, a minister or an elder or you stand here and preach it's very easy you know to say well look at me I preach I lead the church I teach the children it goes worse than that I never miss a meeting I attend 50 Christian conferences every year don't you wish you were as godly as me? Don't you wish you were as spiritual as me? We who serve in any way, we want to do a good job. We really do want to do a good job. But let's make sure we serve to exalt God and not to exalt ourselves in the eyes of others. Verse 30. Uh, then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number. And if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. Jacob makes himself the victim. 
Everything centres on him. Never mind Dinah. What about me? Poor me. And the sons reply by claiming Dinah as theirs. Verse 31. But they replied, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? Man alive. We see these people's weaknesses and wickedness so clearly, don't we? It's really obvious. I'll tell you this, when it comes to our own weakness and wickedness, we don't see that so clearly, do we? Our weakness and wickedness are not so obvious when we're involved. So here is Jacob. I think he's probably at the lowest he's ever been in his life, the lowest he ever will be in his life. He's at rock bottom. He's in trouble with his family. He's an outsider. He's public enemy number one with the indigenous people around him. But in the midst of his failure, God, the faithful and long-suffering God, speaks. Verse 1 of chapter 35. Then God said to Jacob, Go to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. Remember Bethel? That's where Jacob was supposed to be and he wasn't. Verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let's go to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. At last, I think, the penny drops. Jacob recognises that God has been with him wherever, he says, I have gone. Whether going in the direction he was supposed to be going or heading off somewhere else. Whether heading back to the promised land or pitching his tent in the sight of Shechem. Whether leading his family as a good father, or sitting back and doing nothing. Through all those things, God has been faithful to him. God has been with him wherever he's gone. And God has blessed him. God has been with us wherever we have gone. And wherever we will go, and he has blessed us, and he will bless us. But God's blessing, God's goodness to us, is sometimes harder than we expect. Verse 4. So they gave Jacob all their foreign gods they had, and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Foreign gods? Where did they come from? You'll remember that Rachel stole her father's household gods when she left Laban. It's clear Jacob knew they were there. I think he knew they were used as objects of worship by his family. And they'd plundered Shechem. There'd have been plenty, plenty of foreign gods there. What about the rings in their ears? Jewelry had a big part to play, you know, in the worship of... in. Uh, pagan cultures it would have been expensive gold do you remember Aaron 
at Mount Sinai. He asked the people for jewellery. And in one of the top ten bad ideas of all time, he made a golden calf for the people to worship out of the jewellery they gave him. These idols, jewellery, Jacob buries under the oak tree at Shechem. The place that was actually used, the oak tree at Shechem, for the worship of idols, now becomes a cemetery for idols. Jacob knows he has to bury his idols. And so do we. It's not that Jacob's family didn't worship God, but worshipped idols instead. It's that they worshipped God and something else. God and this, God and that. And for us Christians too, we often worship God and. God and our spouse. God and our children. God and our body image. God and our car. God and our job. God and our iPhone, whatever it is. We say we worship God, but we live functionally worshipping something else as well. For me, I worship God, but I often need to know that my uh, family are healthy and safe. That (laughs) somehow becomes a very big thing in my life. I worship these things, the health and well-being of my family and God. But God will bring us to times of crisis so that we realise that actually God is all we need. More than that, God is actually all we have. Verse 5. Then they set out and the terror of God fell on all the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar and he called the place El Bethel because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. God protects them as they travel to where they were supposed to be going all along. Verse 8. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak outside Bethel. So it was named Alon Bakuth. Out of the blue, we get this name, Deborah. And her epitaph. Who's she? Well, Deborah is one of the women who must have left Haran with Jacob's mum, Rebecca, when she went to become Isaac's wife. There's no record of this important woman, Rebecca. There's no record of her death in the whole of the Bible. But here we've got the death of someone relatively unimportant, Rebecca's nurse. She must have been really loved in Jacob's family because they call the place where she's buried the Oak of Weeping. So Jacob first buries his idols, things that were precious to him, and now he's beginning to bury his past. Verse 9, after Jacob returned from Padam Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, your name will be Jacob, but you'll no longer be called Jacob Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you. And kings will be amongst your descendants. Remember the king bit. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you. And I will give this land to your descendants after you. 
Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him. And he poured out a drink offering on it. And he also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. And if you've been with us in our studies in Genesis over this last period, this should sound a bit familiar. God is repeating promises he's made to Abraham and Isaac and to to Jacob before that uh, the promised land would be theirs and a seed, uh, a great nation would come from them. God blesses Jacob again and again and again. Jacob is broken. And God speaks. And God blesses him. Verse 16. Then they moved on from Bethel. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, uh, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. This is all the front page breaking news. We didn't know that Rachel was pregnant again. Verse 17. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't despair, for you have another son. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Oni. But his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. This is the third burial in this chapter, another break with his past. And Jacob is burying another idol. This is his beloved, treasured wife, Rachel, the wife that he really did love. This Rachel, who would actually said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die, is given children. And she died. Rachel's idol was having children. And Rachel's idolatry put her in the grave. Rachel calls her son Ben-Oni. It means son of my sorrow. Jacob renames him Benjamin. That means son of my right hand. A son of his mother's sorrow. A son of his father's right hand. Bethlehem. Doesn't all that point to something Surely this is a hint of the birth of someone special to come. Jesus, the son, the saviour, was the son of his mother's sorrow. Jesus, the saviour, who was the son of his father's right hand. Verse 21, Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. Israel here is Jacob. Uh, There's a kind of uh, schizophrenia about naming Jacob and Israel for the rest of the chapters, I think. Jacob moves on, and Reuben, remember, firstborn son of Leah, the unloved wife, he feels the pain of his father's neglect. And he greatly insults his father by taking now what would become his on his father's death. In effect, he's saying to Jacob, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. 
And then there's a family tree. We'll come back to the family tree in a minute. Let's deal with the final verses of the chapter. 27. Uh, Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mamre near Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived 180 years, then he breathed his last and died. He was gathered to his people, old and full of years. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. The sons are together again. But this is the fourth burial. Jacob's last tie to the past, his dad, is gone. As he and Esau bury Isaac. And then if you look at chapter 36, you'll be pleased we're not going to go through it. It's a chapter full of names. They're all the descendants of Esau. Esau, you know, despised spiritual things, despised God. But God still honoured his promises concerning him. Sin does not change God's plan. God had a plan for Esau's family and before his birth, when the twin sons of Rebekah were struggling in the womb, God told her that Esau would become a strong nation. Two nations are in your womb, he said. Two peoples uh, from within you will be separated. One will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. Esau, despite the strength of his uh, nation, really, was not the son of promise. Uh, Jacob was. Yet God prospered Esau. He made him into this great nation. It was to become Edom, the nation of Edom. And you can see the strength of that kingdom from all the lists of kings and chiefs in chapter 36. But the animosity between Esau and Jacob wasn't uh, erased, wasn't rubbed out by history. And the history of Edom is one of greater and growing sinfulness. There was a day in history when two kings uh, confronted one another. One was at the pinnacle of human power. His name was Herod Antipas. His father was Herod the Great You might know Herod the Great because he was the one who slaughtered the babies in Bethlehem in an attempt to exterminate this newborn king, Jesus. Herod the Great was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. His son, Herod Antipas, was an Edomite, no better than his dad. He was was, uh, rich and powerful and smooth-talking, And just as evil as his father. The other king was called Jesus. He was a descendant of Jacob. He was the natural heir to the throne of David. He's the king of kings. He didn't look like a king. He was humble. Rejected by the people within hours of meeting Herod Antipas. He would die the death of a criminal on a cross. The motive of Herod Antipas was, what will it profit me? What's in it for me? The motive of Jesus was, I will do my father's will. Jesus died on a cross. His death was followed by the resurrection as God vindicated his son's faithfulness. Esau was already a great and powerful nation when he buried his father. Jacob, (laughs) you can see from his family tree in chapter 35, Two wives, two concubines, 12 sons, 
one daughter. But Jacob, who gained the birthright by deception, who gained the first son's blessing by deception, now becomes the head of the entire family. Have you ever given up on anyone? They've tried your patience for so long, you say, that's it, enough's enough. I've had it up to here with you, no more. Sadly, in the course of my life, I've done that a few times. I would have written off Jacob a long time before this point. But behind Jacob's story is this truth. God is faithful to his people, even as they continue to fail and rebel. My testimony is this. God is faithful to me, even though I fail and rebel. It's a testimony of every Christian. It's Jacob's experience and testimony, and it's yours and mine as well, isn't it? Jacob was a deceiver and a failure as a father. At the lowest point of his life, Jacob felt alone, but God does not leave him alone. At this lowest point in his life, God reveals himself to Jacob in blessing. God has a way of revealing himself to us in the most unexpected places and when we least expect it to open our eyes to his faithfulness and love and mercy. Psalm 46 comforts us. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. The faithful God of Jacob is our faithful God. Psalm 1 to 1 assures us, The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The faithful God of Jacob is our faithful God. The Apostle Paul pledges this, If God is for us, who can stand against us? The faithful God of Jacob is our faithful God. You know, sometimes we question God's faithfulness, God's goodness to us, especially when God blesses us by taking things away. But God takes things away from us so that we come to know that we need God alone. Indeed, that God is truly the only thing we have, just as Jacob did. In Jacob's life, God revealed himself in the most unexpected times and places. God still reveals himself in the most unexpected times and places. Uh, Jesus, God the Son, came when the time was fully come. Born to a humble married couple in a filthy uh, animal stable who lived to suffer and to die before rising uh, to reign at the right hand of God the Father. And God uh, still reveals himself in the most unexpected places. You know, every time you open your Bible, every time you pray, every time you sit under the preaching of God's word, God reveals himself to you. Right here, right now, God is revealing himself to you. In Rotherham, in your home, at work, in your car, 
In the hospital when you're sick. At the seaside when you're on holiday. God reveals himself to his people. Like Jacob. We mess up. We think God must have given up on us. And we don't blame him. Many of you will know that feeling. I know I do. Perhaps it feels like that to you even today. But Moses stuttered. John Mark was rejected by Paul. Hosea's wife was a prostitute. Jeremiah struggled with depression. Gideon and Thomas doubted. Jonah ran away from God. Abraham lied. So did his son Isaac. So did his grandson Jacob. These are real people like us who had real failures and real struggles and real inadequacies and real sin. And God was faithful to them. You see, it's not from our strength, but from our weakness that God works. It's from his invincible grace and mercy and power. If you only take one thing away from this afternoon, let it be this. That the sin and failure of our lives can never outrun the faithfulness of God to us. The sin and failure of our lives can never outrun the faithfulness of God to us. We are sinners. We have hope apart from the mercies of God. But God has brought us hope through the life and death and resurrection of his beautiful son. God has been faithful to us. God is faithful to us always. Let us be faithful to him. Let us worship him. Let us serve him. Wherever we find ourselves today, whatever your state of mind is, whether God is blessing you by adding things to your life or God is blessing you by taking things away, let's put our trust in him. He will prove himself faithful to you. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them. And my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed. His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Shall we pray? Great is your faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Thank you, in Jesus' name.